This episode of the Major Spoilers Podcast is being brought to you by the Whalen Corporation. The Whalen Corporation is currently seeking investors for several classified projects. You can find out more at www.waylandindustries.com. Yay, podcast night! This episode is brought to you by Major Spoilers VIP members. VIP stands for very important people, and their small monthly contributions ensure that this podcast remains free for all of you. If you would like to become a bronze, silver, or gold VIP member, go to members.majorspoilers.com for more information. I sure do thank you for your support. Now, here's your show. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course spoilers, and goes into detail about the topics discussed. So, if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items they talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Ashley. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, half the crew's in a tornado watch, but we have miles to go and Hellboy in Mexico to review before we sleep. Plus, we call Saul, Strawberry Shortcake returns, Faith wraps up her first solo gig, and Ocean's Eleven with real 11-year-olds. There's movie madness everywhere and classic crushes squaring off in our kick-butt poll of the week. So put on your luchador mask, load up your silver bullets, and grab a bottle of anything, because the Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Welcome to issue 674 of the Major Spoilers Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading and listening and sharing this episode with a friend. We really appreciate everything that you do to spread the good word about Major Spoilers and the Major Spoilers Podcast Network. Uh, Let's see. Oh, we've got uh, Matthew and Ashley and Rodrigo, and I am here. And, of course, you, the listener, are here, the most important person on this show, our dear, dear listener. Uh, Why don't we get to some news? We got three items, of course, this week. We can talk about Nathan Fillion to play Wonder Man in Gu- Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Disney announces mm. more live-action adaptations of animated classics. And the final X-Men Apocalypse trailer arrives. Let's spin that Wheel of Destiny. Let's see whose claws snick out at us. And there it lands on number two. Disney announces more live at, uh, adaptations of animated classics. Uh, Disney uh, secured like four different dates uh, today or yesterday. They haven't mm-hmm. given them the words, but they are Disney Fairy Tale live action scheduled for July 28th of 2017. Untitled Disney Fairy Tale now dated for uh, April 6th, 2018. Live action movie for August 3rd, 2018. Live action movie for December 25th, 2018. And Disney Fairy Tale live action December 20th, 2018. They did say that they were moving forward with 101 Dalmatians. Or I'm sorry, they're ma- planning on making Cruella, a 101 yes. Dalmatian spinoff with Emma Stone, as well as uh, Jungle Book 2, a Maleficent, uh, uh, another movie for that. Uh, they're also working with A Wrinkle in Time, The Nutcracker in the Four Realms. But I think the thing that, I guess that I wanted to talk about is this idea of taking a lot of their classic animated movies like 101 Dalmatians, like the jungle book, like Cinderella, like snow white and turning them into these, um, live action adaptations. Is that, is that good or not? To me, it, it feels like you've run out of ideas, Disney. The brother of Grimm cinematic universe. It's such an obvious grab to keep, they're so afraid of losing any of their copyrights. I mean, look at Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm. That even these things that they didn't create, their pre-existing myths in our world and in the cultural zeitgeist. Like, I think this is a terrible idea. <laughs> so do I. I just, I, I don't, I don't think it has anything to do with um, 
I mean, it might have something to do with maintaining certain copyrights, but uh, like you said, most of this stuff is in the public domain as general stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is just the way that Disney expresses the the current um, uh, kind of culture in Hollywood, right? Like, you can't mm-hmm. do anything unless it has uh, a um, or a built-in audience, and you can't do anything mm-hmm. unless there's a big star tied to it. Right, it's there like, has unless to be you an have, established property involved. Right, unless you have those two things, you can't move forward with a movie, which is great for Disney because that's um, that's what Disney already has. Disney already has all these established properties. It's the reason why it's like the real reason why Disney bought Marvel. Right, it's mm-hmm. this constant fear that you can't have a successful movie that comes out of nothing. You have to have something there already, otherwise your movie will tank. And um, this is just the way that Disney expresses that. I, I don't know. They're I d- learning. Go ahead, Matthew. I, I think they're learning some of the wrong lessons from things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the fact that when you have that established property, and we talked about this with the sudden resurgence of Howard the Duck. It doesn't matter if it has a good reputation or not. If it has a reputation, if it has a pop culture, basically a a, a wavelength, something that's visible on the metaphorical radar, that is good. Knowing People knowing what your movie is means that people think they know what it's about. And for some reason, and I think this is true of more than just movies, for some reason, most of our movies, our books, our television shows – are somehow more successful when they're based on something that is comfortingly familiar to at least some of the audiences. So, I mean, if you've ever watched Once Upon a Time, which is another Disney joint, which is literally live-action soap operas with all of their animated heroines, I think that you can see that this is something that it's certainly not new, not even new for Disney. I, I wonder, is do you think that a lot of this is because people are not or the interest in animated films or full length animated films that are 2d drawn has dwindled Uh, for years. One of the things that Disney would do, which I thought was brilliant because it was the way that I was introduced to Disney is that they would lock up their films for a number of years and then roll the Disney vault. Yeah. And then they would roll them out to theaters when the next generation was ready. So I got to see snow white and the seven dwarfs in the theaters uh, when I was uh, three or four years old, whenever they re-released that, my dad took me to the theater and it was a wonderful experience. And ever since then, every couple of years, they would come out with the next movie and the next movie and the next movie. So I got to go to the theater to see all these animated movies growing up. But now it seems like because of the proliferation of animated stuff on television and in the Internet, mm-hmm. going in with a 2D animated film is a super risky business. And Mm -hmm. Disney doesn't seem to want to do that anymore. They want to focus on 3D. They want to focus on the next generation of stuff. And the stuff that they're focusing on, of course, is the Pixar stuff, which is original stories. This isn't stuff that they're they're cobbling or or cribbing together from previous properties. Pixar is developing original stories. And the the traditional uh, Disney um, uh, uh, 3D stuff now is starting to grab from their previous properties as well. And so I don't know. I, I wonder if, if that's the case, if, if the interest in full-length animated films has dropped off. I don't, I don't know if the interest has, but I think that their cachet has. And I think that it, we, we've actually seen this where someone will make, remake a movie with modern special effects and recognizable Johnny Depp's 
and people will actually make the case that the inferior version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is somehow better than the one from 1971 because it looks more modern. I'm it's something that, we, that statement. It's true, though. Uh, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm with you there. Um, I, I don't think I, I don't think that it's that people aren't turning up to see 2D animated movies. It's that um, they're more expensive and time consuming. I, I think are, are they? I don't think that a, a traditional two D animated film is going to cost you two hundred million dollars or one hundred and twenty million dollars. Well, it's going to cost at you about an eighty-five million dollar price tag. It's it's going to cost you more than like a Frozen type deal where everything's CG, or it's, it's going to cost mm, you. No, it's going to cost about the same. I I don't know about that. I, I, honestly, Disney has gone through a lot of stumbles with their animation. Basically, when they said, you know what, we're going to get rid of our 2D stuff and everybody flipped out and they're like, you know what, we're going to start that up again. Basically, Disney ejected their entire infrastructure for that. Anything they do now, they have to basically put it back together. Um, and that might be pricier than what they already have. Frozen was a hit. Wreck-It Ralph was a hit. Um, Big Hero 6 was a hit. So at this point... It's not necessarily that people won't go see a 2D movie. It's that Disney has already created an infrastructure and burnt their old one. So I think they just don't want to do it. Ashley, is it, is, it, is it that people want to go see Angelina Jolie come back as Maleficent or see Emma Stone as Cruella in these live action adaptations as opposed to hearing their voices? Um, if it is, then it frankly baffles me because I don't want to see Angelina Jolie in anything, um, if I'm going to be completely honest. Okay. Uh, no, I think that is the same kind of logic that people want to accept for this that they will not accept for superhero casting. That is like, to use kind of a rude word, that's your bean counter logic. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why you gave the flash not to Grant Gustin, who'd never let a movie and had only let half a season of a TV show. Right. Why you gave it to Ezra Miller, who had won several awards for leading several movies. Um, and I think for Disney, I mean, Cinderella was a big hit. Uh, Jungle Book is being really well received. Everybody's hyped for Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid somewhat inexplicably. Um, I think the the logic from the financial standpoint is very sound. But again, there's nothing that they can do that's going to make me interested in these personally. And and to be honest, I've got kids. Matthew has kids. Um, I asked him, I said, do you guys want to go see Jungle Book? And they're like, no, not really. Well, which yeah, is, but I mean. Which is, again, it's aimed right at them for this. Singing bears, uh, giant jungle monkeys. Um, yeah. You know, all these other things that uh, Kipling put together, Disney uh, purchased in air quotes. Uh, I, I don't know. I, really I personally, think I think, I think personally it is a slap in the face on the Disney tradition of these classic animated films and to be, and I think jungle book, the animated feature holds up super well, even today. Oh, sure. and if you, and 10 years from now, the animated version will still be superior to, uh, the live action version. Well, this isn't the first live action jungle book that D, that, uh, that Disney has put out. There was, another, the there was another. There was another. Yep. There was another live-action Jungle Book with Mowgli as basically a, a young adult, and I want to say, um, no, I'm thinking of something else. I was like, uh, or does that? Did that guy have the guy from Jurassic Park in it? I want to say it did. Know. 
In any case. I think you're thinking of Rapa Nui, which had the same lead character in a similar role. Oh, maybe. In any case, um, yeah, I mean, Disney all, has already gone through this phase. You know, the aforementioned 101 Dalmatians mm-hmm. was a live, you know, there was a I think live that might have been one of the first ones. Yeah, that had uh, Glenn Close in it, I think. Glenn Close, Close 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 yes. Yep. Yeah. And back in those days, that was a novelty. You know, they basically Disney didn't manage to get a formula down. And also there were other things going on in both in movies as a medium and in the film industry that kind of made those um, more of a one off. And they weren't all successful. But now that basically they can like we are living in an age of nostalgia and Mm. any and, and Disney is like the empire of nostalgia. So they have literally all this of is the their stuff. Death Star. Yeah, yeah this for is, real. They can they can draw on this infinitely. They have tons of properties, and um, they have the most and, and and the properties that they don't have they can purchase. So Disney is just kind of running uh, this like incredible nostalgia machine, and and the um, the industry helps that the industry like this is a moment in which the industry is built precisely to allow that so i mean this is what disney does now they started it and they're kind of the ones that do it best so it's really not surprising but i think also it's not just disney doing remakes of of stuff anymore a lot of studios have done that so have we just then have we just then actually come into this time period of let's do remakes because originality is dead I don't think originality's uh, dead because 10 Cloverfield Lane is probably mm-hmm. the best movie I've seen this year. And mm-hmm. it is, um, I mean, we're also at the point in our human society where we've seen all the stories. You just have to find a more interesting way to dress it up. Right. Um, I think we are in an, I like to steal this from The Simpsons, instant oatmeal society where mm-hmm. we would rather see something <laughs> that is familiar um, and makes us feel good than try something different. And I think that that has... Um, sort of osmosis over onto the economics of what filmmaking is. And I think the fact that audiences accept it is where a big problem comes from. Well, that's why the Transformers movies have made more money than anything without have, making any sense at all. But, I mean, well, those, uh, those Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies were the highest grossing film of that yep. year. So it's, yep. I mean, it's, it's right there. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, specifically, uh, Stephen had referenced uh, Emma Stone as Cruella. The Cruella thing is basically a remix. If I understand it right, the Cruella thing is wicked through the lens of 101 Dalmatians, mm-hmm. which would be fine if it weren't for the fact that Cruella is, in fact, a completely reprehensible character. And you're going to have to work really hard to make me want to care why she wants to kill a bunch of dogs so she can have a new coat. And yeah, I but coat. Emma Stone. Emma, it's Emma Stone. Stone. Yeah, Matthew. I love Emma Stone. She'll I get love have, Emma maybe Stone. Matthew, Ma- maybe Matthew, they will give you the best of both worlds. She'll have blonde hair and red hair. They won't do that. And the best of both worlds would be red hair and also red hair. <laughs> There's also a, a Tinkerbell project in the works with uh, Reese Barf. Witherspoon. Uh, I knew you were going to say Reese Witherspoon. That's what they have oh, down. Uh, Jungle Jungle suck. Cruise based on the ride with Dwayne Johnson and uh, Dumbo. Wait, you took a ride with Dwayne Johnson? Yes. Yeah, um, the, the Dumbo one sounds amazing yeah. because it's like um, – Tim Burton. Is, is it like Tim Burton? Tim Burton? It's yeah. like Tim Burton 
and the producer of like something frightening. Oh, Revenge of the Fallen. Yeah. Like, oh my god, Revenge of the Fallen is like, how scary is Dumbo going to be? It's going to be horrifying. And how are they going to get Helena Bonham Carter in an elephant suit? That's what I want to know. (laughs) Oh, there are so many rude comments to be made. Yeah. Be nice. Also, well, actually, no, Helena Bonham Carter has to be killed by Johnny Depp, so she'll play Dumbo's mom. And Dumbo will be played by Johnny Depp because Johnny Johnny Depp will probably be one of the crows and he'll be claiming to be Native American. It'll be fantastic. Yes. Yes, The role will be reversed. He will be the crow on top of Johnny Depp. And he'll be wearing a Tonto hat. Yes. Yet he'll still be jive talking and everybody will be a little (laughs) bit uncomfortable. (laughs) Disney is said to also be planning sequels to uh, Mary Poppins uh, with Mm -hmm. Emily Blunt and Hamilton uh, creator (laughs) Lin-Manuel Miranda. Mary Poppins too. Even Poppinier. It's yeah. wrapping this time. Another spoonful. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm just not a, I'm not a big fan of these live adaptations, but you know, they've, they've been hitting them out of the park. I, I'm surprised at the number of people that go, but I just, I don't know if that is the weird, the weird nexus of a good weekend date plus PG rating family fair type stuff that is, is uh, bringing audiences in. I will also Disney. say, as someone who lives within, um, you know, spitting distance of Disneyland, mm-hmm. the Disney fans are varied and hardcore. Yeah, they are. Um, so I find it less surprising that they're doing well and oh, more yeah. more surprising that it's what the general zeitgeist can, seems to be able to get behind. I used to be one of those hardcore Disney fans. And they just go all the time yeah, and it's so expensive. I know. That's why getting those uh, yearly passes are, are the way to go, even though those are expensive. But uh that's the way to do it. And then, of course, D23 is coming up, uh, was it next summer? So people will have be they, buying Have they for that. really made 23 Mighty Ducks movies? That's amazing. No. <laughs> that, Joshua no that Emilio Estevez got to work. Yeah. <laughs> you got to pay them bills. Got to pay them bills. Here's the thing, though. What it really comes down to is we, and I say we in the general sense. I don't necessarily mean the four of us because, well, we do it too. There's a tendency to hear a pitch, and you know Hollywood has long had this thing of an elevator pitch. It's Tron meets Batman. And when you hear that, you have that visceral response and go, that's going to suck. And it is a natural response, but it's also the same thing that gives us Batman versus Superman. You know, oh, that sounds awesome. But what it's really going to break down to is the execution of it. I mean, if you said to me, I'm going to do a hip-hop musical about Alexander Hamilton, I would say to you, Lots of luck. I'll see you next week when you're back here working with me on the assembly line. But it's the hottest thing in the New York and everybody wants to see it. And it's, it's you know, the, the most wonderful awesome that ever did awesome. So it's sold out. If through somebody, November. Exactly. If somebody can come in there and they can really knock a script out of the park and they can put Cruella together and they can have Emma Stone in Emma Stone form being adorable and, and giggly and Emma Stoney with her with her breathy while, voice while, while killing puppies. While killing puppies. That's the trick. That's the hook. If you can make the killing puppies somehow feel sympathetic, like a puppy, I don't know, knocking well, over a lamp look, and killing your family. If it's if it's going to be a Maleficent situation, is like, oh, no, you got the story wrong. She was trying to help those puppies. And there you go. I'm sure that's exactly what it's going to be. Yeah, she like, didn't want to make them into a coat. She wanted to make them all some coats so right. they wouldn't be cold over the winter. But that greedy little English boy insisted on sticking them all in an apartment where they couldn't run and play and they were all stuffed in and they had to eat porridge. I Boom. Don't think he was English. He was English. 
No. Everybody, everybody, I think everybody that's in that was set in. No, it's I think it's set in, in America. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That uh, doesn't make him any less English. Going back to a data point I think earlier. The bad guys were English, weren't yes, they? Yes, they were. Yes. Uh, <laughs> a a data point from earlier. Frozen, uh, 150 million dollars. Uh, the Princess Frog, which is I think the last Disney 2D animated movie, was until. Until that Hawaiian Islander yes. girl one comes is, out. Is case. Moana actually going to be 2D animated or is it 3D? I think it's 2D with 3D assists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought, sure, I thought sure. they said it was going to be traditionally animated and then, okay. you know, that thing sure. they do on Family Guy where all the cars are suddenly computer animated. Yeah, so the Princess uh, Frog was $105 million for its production budget. And how much was Frozen? $150 million. So... Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so you can head over to Majorspoilers.com. You can check out all the stories over there. You can check out that X-Men Apocalypse uh, trailer. You can go and uh, find out information about Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and a whole lot more. It's all over at Majorspoilers.com. While you're over there, if you're mm. wanting to grab some of these movies before, uh, before they um, go away, before Disney locks them up in their vaults forever, click on that <laughs> Amazon link. Click on that Amazon link and do a search. When you click on that Amazon link over at Majorspoilers.com and you go and you search for 101 Dalmatians, the live action version or the animated version. Actually, I don't think you can get the animated version on DVD unless it's being sold through another. It uh, is in the vaults. Yes. Um, When you go and purchase over there, a little bit comes back our way, allows us to keep things going week after week. It's all by clicking on that Amazon link at Majorspoilers.com. Thank you so much for doing that. All right. Let us get to some reviews. Reviews. Ashley, I did not know you were going to be talking about this, but now I'm super excited that you want to talk about Better Call Saul season two. Well, it's been two weeks, and if I could do that and whistle at the same time, that joke would be a lot funnier. (laughs) So here's my little thing, because I have to preface all my reviews uh, about Better Call Saul. Uh, I didn't watch Breaking Bad, but I really like, uh, and it's really not according to everybody else I've ever met, Uh, but I really like Mm. Better Call Saul. So... This season, um, we're talking about the whole season, so if you haven't seen it, uh, mm-hmm. too bad, or turn, skip ahead like 10 minutes. Yep. Um, so this season deals a lot. You might want to lot- come back later. Yeah. Hello, future people who have just come back. Um, deals a lot with Jimmy kind of striking out on his own and trying to come out from his brother's shadow. And even more than season one, it deals with him. He's, he's such an interesting character because he wants so hard to be a good guy, but he just can't be a good guy. He's slipping and Jimmy. He is slipping Jimmy, and he slips real hard. Mm-hmm. And Mike Ehrmantraut, um, who's actually my favorite character in the whole thing, has a very similar storyline and arc throughout this season in that um, he's kind of got his daughter's trust back. He's spending more time with her and his granddaughter, and he's being really good at that, but he can't quite give up the convenience of the money. Like, being a, a thug is the only thing that he can do. And I know in Breaking Bad, the first time you meet them, the first time you meet Mike, you get a sense that they have had this really long relationship. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting to see it develop over the course of this season because they don't really like each other and they don't really want to have to work together. But they're kind of the only guys that they know who do what they do and who can do it with their weird Flash Rogues Gallery sense of honor. Mm -hmm. And I just think that when you tell a story that feels so like fantastical and not like real life but the performances and the way it's shot in the writing really makes it feel like a documentary like you're peeping it on someone's life that's where cable tv filmmaking and tv making comes to shine because better call Saul is very slow paced um 
in both the writing and the performance, but not in a way like, oh my God, the shot's gone on for 10 minutes, but in a way that sometimes your life just takes a really long time. It's a really fascinating look in at the human condition and what it is like to be a person who lives in a, you know, medium-sized city in the Midwest and this is what you do, but you think that you can do better. But like this is what Saul, aka Jimmy, has resigned himself to. And there are just enough wins that by the end when he, spoilers, uh, totally betrays his brother and ruins everything in his life, it feels really poignant and really sad. And they do a great job at leaving the show open to what is going to come in the next season, while at the same time leaving you with no idea uh, what is going to happen, but not in that frustrating way that HBO likes to do. I'm <laughs> um, looking at you, Game of Thrones. <laughs> so, I mean, it's got fantastic writers, fantastic performers, and it has one of the coolest um, dolly shots that then they took off the camera that then they put on a dolly yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the in the finale episode that a bunch of us thought was a drone for a really long time. Mm -hmm. So it's while it is not as exciting as Breaking Bad, there are really interesting characters that crop up. Um, Scaramanga, mm -hmm. I know Breaking Bad fans, uh, you're gonna you see him totally capable, which is really fascinating. Um, so there's enough callbacks to the old series, and there is at moments when it is due, there are moments of high action and high violence. Uh, not for the kids, lots of swear words. Uh, who knew that Bob Odenkirk was really this talented? It's really cool to watch that as well. So I'm going to give it five out of five yeah. slices of the old meatloaf. It's I, one of the best things on TV. It really is. And and the thing with Jimmy is that he wants so hard to do things to, and you can tell that he genuinely wants to help people, but he doesn't He's, need to do it by crossing the T's and dotting the I's, which was a big turning point in this this season mm -hmm. and while he knows that he has to screw over his brother for the right reason yeah when it comes to that point where you know his brother hates him his brother despises him with every ounce of his being jimmy still does the right thing and knows that he deep down he loves his brother and will do anything for his brother which is i think ultimately his downfall the biggest problem with this show biggest problem with this show 10 episodes long. <laughs> well, HBO does that. Uh, I this know. Is not, this, this is this AMC. Is, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. But the, uh, 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 cable does this thing where they give you they give you a budget and you make as many episodes mm -hmm. as you want. So sometimes you're really lucky and you get, you can squeeze 13 episodes out of this. But a lot of them, um, at Game of Thrones, this is as well, you get 10 and they're great episodes, but then you got to wait another year for 10 more. I, I forgot who was on, on Twitter. It was like after he had seen the last episode. I don't know if he was being, if he was joking but or if he didn't really know that that was the last episode, he's like, oh, man, this week's episode ended so great. I cannot wait until next week's episode. And I didn't have the heart to tell him uh, yeah. the next episode is going to be like next year. But yeah, that's so sad. And, and, <laughs> but, you know, people who say that you have to watch uh, Breaking Bad in order to understand uh, Better Call Saul, you don't. You absolutely do, don't. If you do uh, have seen Breaking Bad. It may give you it may fill in some things for you to know who these people are and who they will become. But mm -hmm. quite honestly, I like Better Call Saul better than I like Breaking Bad. What? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I really think Better Call Saul is that good. And Odenkirk is just brilliant as uh, as Jimmy McGill. So. He's he's like ridiculously good in this in this yeah. show. Oh, no, he's really good. All right. Thank you, Ashley, for that. Uh, this week, my sister got me into strawberry shortcake. Way back a long time ago, uh, she Star had all the little comics in 1986. She had all the little uh, action figures 
they each one smelled differently. Like strawberry sm- shortcake smelled like strawberry shortcake. And uh, lemon meringue smelled like lemon meringue. And the purple pie man smelled like, I think, blueberry pie for some reason, if I remember. He smelled like purple. <laughs> he smelled like purple. That, that's uh, for sure. It tastes like blue. It tastes like blue. <laughs> uh, but she had all those figures. And it just drove me nuts because she would take them everywhere. But I would put up with it because, you know, I kind of like the smell of strawberries and lemon meringue and cherries and blueberries and all these kinds of things. Um, but that was when she was young and I was young and all that stuff. So I was really kind of interested to see what Strawberry Shortcake is like today. And IDW Publishing is releasing Strawberry Shortcake number one this week, written by Georgia Ball, with art by Amy Meberson, I believe is how you say her name. Oh, of My Little Pony fame. Yeah. And the characters have been updated. In fact, they've been updated for several years now, where the hats are completely different. They don't have that classic 80s look. But this is kind of a, I don't want to say it is a uh, origin story, because when you walk into this, you know who Strawberry Shortcake is. You know who her friends are. I was not um, didn't know who these Berrykin people were. That must be a new thing. But this is really kind of the first introduction of the Purple Pie Man, where um, the Berrykin school daycare whatever needs a new train so the kids can ride around on. And uh, fortunately, up in the big city, there's a uh, cooking contest where the prize is this train. And so uh, all of uh, Strawberry Shortcake's friends convince her to enter the contest. And she goes up against the Purple Pie Man and two other people. And at first, the Pie Man is like, oh, I'm just a YouTube's star. And it's spelled completely different than YouTube. I'm just trying to make my way. And if I can win this contest, I know it will help my career. Oh, I just want to win this. And you can tell that he may be involved in some hijinks to um, get two of the other contestants kicked out of the contest. Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, by the end of the issue, both the Purple Pie Man and Strawberry Shortcake are on their way to the big city to both compete because they've both won the contest in a tie. And so they'll both compete in part two of the, I think it's called the Big Pie Off or something. Is Purple what the, Pie Man year one. Awesome. Yeah. So the art is really different. I mean, um, for me, again, Strawberry Shortcake is the old classic 80s, you know, um, throwback to the 1890s uh, type characters. Um, so the art was different, but it was nice. Surprisingly, there are a lot of panels in this book. There's a lot of uh, dialogue in this book. The dialogue isn't dumbed down for kids, but this is very much a a kid's book. Um, I I think maybe fans of Strawberry Shortcake of all ages will enjoy it, but I I feel confident that I could give this to my kids and they would probably both enjoy it as well. Uh, Strawberry Shortcake, number one, it's a fun, interesting, we were just talking about nostalgia. It's a kind of a fun, interesting trip back down memory lane. Uh, probably not completely my cup of tea, but I definitely wanted to check it out. Uh, but I'm giving it three and a half slices of meatloaf, strawberry meatloaf out of five for strawberry shortcake. Number one. Eh, you know, those, those, those dolls after they got wet, never smelled that great anyway. So Mm. strawberry shortcake meatloaf. So that's out this week. Never tell you my strawberry shortcake story. No, you did not. But how about you tell us your review of faith number four? The final issue in this miniseries before the uh, continuing ongoing series kicks off, I think, next month. I can do that. Faith number four from Valiant Comics, or as uh, old people like me refer to it, VH3, the third iteration thereof. Uh, Faith is by far the coolest character at Valiant Comics. In the original incarnations, this was not so, so I'm doubly happy to tell you that this book is really good. In the first three issues, Faith has basically tried to become Superman. 
She's gotten a job. She couldn't find a job in, uh, you know, newspaper publishing. So she works for something that is clearly not BuzzFeed. And she wears a wig and glasses to hide her identity, which doesn't work very well. They all know who she is now. And she has been investigating a situation that it turns out that aliens are running a cult that uses the entire Hollywood elite to control the minds of the people and also sometimes to eat folks. So, Wait Ashley, you didn't tell me this was real. This was Ashley, if they've events. revealed your evil plan, I'm real sorry. You can't get me. I'm six states away. Neener. Now, That's what you think. Uh-huh. You say that now. You don't know. My mother came from Krypton. Anyway, <laughs> this issue begins with Faith's ex-boyfriend, Torque, no relation, captured by the cult. So she calls in her new boyfriend, Archer, from Archer and Armstrong. And also her favorite actress from her favorite sci-fi show, who is clearly not Summer Glau, but really probably is Summer Glau, from the way they discuss the show and the way the character acts and the way the character is drawn. This is clearly a Summer Glau analog. They decide that they're going to go in and save the day and save her boyfriend. And it's really interesting to see... The character of Faith, because she is really sweet and really kind and really heroic and thoughtful, but she's in this situation where she's trying to act like a comic book superhero, but comic book superheroes are kind of douches. So at one point, the evil guy has knocked her down, and she can't think of a cool comeback, but she ends up fighting and saving the day and coming back in, and after everything has come down, she flies back in. She's like, ah, I have the perfect comeback now. And, of course, the villain expects that she's going to kill him. She won't. And as the issue ends, what we've really seen is a character who deserves to be a superhero, who really is as close as you can get to a realistic superhero portrayal within the Valiant framework, which is, of course, still a superhero comic. But I love this book. I love this character, and I love Jody Hauser's take on it. The art is really solid as well. The art is, uh, who, who done that art there? It's, uh, uh, Marguerite Savage and Francis Portella. Very, very solid book. Four slices of meatloaf for faith number four. I'm super psyched that it's an ongoing series. I'm adding it to my metaphorical pull list because most of my books are digital now. Cool. Never expected to hear that five years ago. Did yeah, you? there you uh -huh. go. There you go. All right. Thank you for that, uh, Matthew. Uh, faith four was out last week or is that out this week? That's out today, I believe. Okay, that's out this week. All right, excellent. And, Rodrigo, it is up to you to wrap us up in our reviews section. Okay. Um, I wrote a book called Four Kids Walk Into a Bank, number one. Um, for the number four, if you're looking for it. Um, this is a story about these uh, four kind of preteens um, who are just kind of like little nerdy kids. They're not the cool kids or anything like that. Um, and uh, very early on, they kind of meet this really sketchy group of guys. Um, they show up at one of their parents' house, and you kind of don't know why. Um, then they kind of show up at them, and they start uh, talking to them while they're in school. You know, there might be something going on with them trying to intimidate uh, this kid's dad. Um, and then by the end, you kind of see them kind of hanging out with the dad. Uh, this 
story, this book, um, the solicitation is a fun crime caper about children. 11-year-old Paige and her weirdo friends have a problem. Again, her sons need her dad's help on a heist. And it really makes it sound like it's a lot more like, um, I don't know, bouncy and happy than it is. Um, this, first off, has some like strong language. Um, and second, uh, for example, it has a guy with a swastika on his face. So, um, it's, you know, like this is a crime story involving children and the children are front and center. You see stuff through them, but, uh, it's, it's a little bit more serious than the solicitation makes it out to be. Um, that said, it's not bad. It actually opens on a D and D game. Um, and you kind of start seeing things through there. Like in their in the fantasy world that's created by the D and D game, um, which is interesting because you're introduced to these characters as like their alternate D and D personas, and then you kind of go through and see who everyone is, um, and then the rest of the book maintains this kind of weird D and D motif. Um, so, for example, um, when you first introduce the characters, or when we first introduce the characters um they uh have for example like plus six strength when they're in the D world and then those same characters when you meet them later um that that kid that was playing the guy with plus six, six strength is referred to as having minus five charm <laughs> and then later on when you meet the ex-cons one of them is for example uh plus two rage um or the cons that are you know uh, after the dad so it's, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot going on. The art is good. Um, it's not, you know, there's really like nothing wrong with it. It's, it's really interesting. And I don't know where it's going other than once again, the book itself hasn't gotten to any sort of talk about a heist, but it was already kind of spoiled by the solicitation. Other than that, tonally, I kind of don't know where it's going. You know, for all I know, uh, the kids will be involved with the heist. Something bad might happen to them. This really could go anywhere, and that's interesting. It's interesting because it's not something like you can't tropify this as easily, right? You can't say like, "Oh, well, this is one of those stories where blah," you know. Um, so, you know, it's like they say it's like Wes Anderson remaking Reservoir Dogs. Um, to me, this already has a really kind of rough uh, Dog Day Afternoon feel which is not necessarily a bad thing. Just be aware that it's actually not a kid's book. Um, I'm going to give it three and a half slices of meatloaf for a, four kids walk into a bank. All right, excellent. And that's the final issue, or is that the first issue? This is the first issue. Okay. It is kind of confusing because it has a number on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is chapter one of five. All right. Well, we will be looking forward to more of that to see. Are you interested in seeing what happens next? I am. I like, like I said, this is a, a pretty unusual comic. No specific thing about it is super weird, but it's combining things in a really interesting way. I am interested to see what happens. Yeah, I was trying to real quick uh, see who this was from. Uh, it's and from Black Mask. Uh, Black Mask Studios. Okay, yeah. Uh, they've yeah. been doing a, they've been doing a lot of interesting uh, projects lately, and that's one of the nice things, I guess, 
we should kind of repeat to listeners every once in a while is that indie comics are good. Go check them yeah. out. You never know what you're going to find. And uh, all of our, well, uh, IDW is a gold tier diamond person now. Sure. But uh, Valiant is not. Right. Uh, Black Mass Studios is not. AMC is definitely not a major no. network. Yeah. We've seen some good stuff out of Action Lab. We've seen, you mm-hmm. know, good stuff out of Arkea. Mm-hmm. Yep. So go check out those indies. There's something yeah, good that awaits. Uh, speaking of waiting, the major spoilers poll of the week is tapping me on the shoulder and saying, hurry up, buddy. We got things to do. We know that there's a new Betty and Veronica series coming from Archie Comics, and Adam Hughes is taking on all of the work, both writing and the art. And he released uh, kind of an interesting cover that kicked off a bunch of other variant covers. I think there's 25 variant covers in total for this first issue that's coming out from Archie Comics, another independent comic. Um, But his cover features Betty and Veronica about ready to bust it up with one another. Mm -hmm. And that does bring up the the question, not who would you rather date, but (laughs) who would win in a fight? Betty or Veronica? Rodrigo, let's start with you. Um, well, you know, for some of us, that's really the same question. Um, no, no, no. Um, I, I, I'll start off by saying that I'm really surprised in the way that people have been voting not to get ahead of ourselves. Um, they really seem to be giving the edge to Betty, I think because she's more of a tomboy. She does like, uh, you know, a lot more sports than Veronica, but I just look at that girl and I see the way the way she acts in the comics and I just think that girl, Veronica, has to fight dirty. Like there is no way that that girl isn't going to be all nails and teeth and heels, you know? So I just I can't imagine a world in which she just doesn't scratch the hell out of Betty. Like I would absolutely 100% give it to Veronica. Okay? Ashley, what about you? Uh, for me, there is pretty much no circumstance uh, under which I am comfortable giving the edge to Veronica, merely on principle. Uh, I definitely think <laughs> I think Betty could hold her own. I think Veronica might get in a few good jabs, but I don't think she has the stamina. She's definitely used to uh, calling in calling in Reggie and the reserve players to get her dirty work done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely Betty. She's the best. Yeah, I went with Betty, too. I think uh, all of her time spent under the hood, uh, wrenching on engines and all the other tomboy activities that she does. I think she could give a couple of punches to Veronica. And even though Veronica may try to scratch, I think a good punch to the face and Veronica would be running off uh, just going, my face, my face, my beautiful face. <laughs> and then she returns as the Phantom of the Opera three issues oh, later. Da, 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 da. So I went with Betty. Matthew, you know, statistically, you statistically speaking, there have been so many Archie comics that that literally probably has happened. I'm sure yeah. it has. <laughs> Vampironica as the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Um, this is really evenly matched. This is this is Superman versus Hyperion evenly matched for me. This is Batman versus Daredevil in a dark sewer evenly matched. Yeah, but Batman still wins. No, Batman loses in a dark sewer, but. The whole point is Batman loses because it's part of his plan. Anyway, when you, when you get right down to it, Rodrigo is 100% correct. Veronica will not fight fair. Veronica will rip and tear and she'll be like, look over there. And she'll be really terrible and awful. And Ashley is also 100% correct in that Betty is physically tougher and would likely hit Veronica so hard she might have her original nose. <laughs> But I think that what it really is going to come down to is a question of 
as with any fight, who's that writer going to think makes for the better story winning? And I feel like if you're a comic book writer and you're writing this story, Veronica is rich and beautiful and has Archie wrapped around her finger. Betty is the underdog going in. Betty will be the underdog coming out with a scrunchie and her knuckles bruised. And then they'll go to Pop's chocolate shop with missing teeth drawn by Dan Parent. And they'll have uh, two chocolate sodas together. And Archie will be so surprised he falls out of panel and only his feet are seen. And then Finney. Yeah, there you go. So it's 50-50 here at the Major Spoilers HQ. Yeah. But uh, maybe not so with the rest of the Major Spoilers nation, Matthew. Oh, no. It's 60-40 easy, and it's starting to lean even more in Betty's favor with 61 votes in the bag. 62% saying Betty, the tomboy girl next door in jeans and rocker boots, can take Veronica in her uh, Manolo Blahnix and whatever that dress is. I'm not even sure. That that may be separates. Anyway, I need to watch more Project Runway to really tell you for sure. All right. Uh, Hannah Jones says Betty would probably be stronger and more athletic, but I think she would stay away from underhanded tactics. Veronica would have no qualms about fighting dirty. Uh, Lieutenant Floby says Betty wins. Uh, Boo boo three. (laughs) Betty, I don't think Veronica would get in the mud. Uh, Slappy says Betty may be the all-American girl next door, but she's tough and ready to get dirty. Veronica is a wealthy girl used to having things done for her. She's more of an expensive oil girl. I recommend a jello fight where they're equally matched. Damn it, Slappy. These people are 16 years old. Horrible. 16 years old. Ray says Veronica is a rich kid at heart, lots of bravado, not a lot of substance. Betty is more sweet, down to earth, and tough. Betty gets my vote. Uh, and there's a whole lot more other comments over there at Majorspoilers.com. Now, when we record these shows, uh, we record them uh, the same day that this uh, poll of the week goes up. So by the time we're recording this, there are not that many votes uh, in the bag uh, over the course of the day. Um, but this poll of the week is up for an entire week. And you mm-hmm. can go over there and you can vote now. Now that you hear this, you can go in and find out what's going on. Uh, and that's how we uh, that's how we uh, see who's winning over over time. So just because we're saying some advanced voting polling right now doesn't mean that's how it's going to to be uh, later on. So don't uh, there's still super delegates in play. Yeah, don't for forget sure. the super delegates and you, yeah. my friend, and the bad the delegates who knew this was going to happen all along are the uh, the super delegate. So right. uh, for example, right now from last week's poll about who's the best bartender. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like Quark is the best bartender all around with Mo, yeah. with Mo Sislak coming in second place, followed by Guinan, then mm-hmm. Sam Malone, then Al Swearingen, and then 10 votes for other people. So last week, I think we only had like 40 votes, I think, by the time we recorded this. Over 200 people voted in the Major Spoilers poll of the week last week. So what I'm saying is head over to Majorspoilers.com, cast oh. your vote in the Major Spoilers poll of the week. It's still open for a whole week. And you can determine the fate of Betty versus Veronica. Uh, Matthew, you had mentioned Dan Parent uh, with Mm -hmm. his uh, that Archie style, that classic Archie style that you like. Yes. There was a Kickstarter that uh, Parent and um, I forget who else uh, was doing it. Fernando uh, Fernando Ruiz. Ruiz. Uh, They went together on this project called Die Kitty Die. It's coming Mm -hmm. out in October 26th of 2016 from Chapter House Books out of Canada. But if you like that Dan Perrin art, uh, someone tweeted me today and said, hey, why does that girl look like an Archie girl? And I said, because it's written and drawn by the Archie people. 
Uh, so uh, if you like that style, go check out Die Kitty Die. More information about that over at Majorspoilers.com. Mm-hmm. This episode of the Major Spoilers podcast is being brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Tweaked Audio is so great. Did you hear that? Yes. Yeah, if you had your Tweaked Audio headphones on, that would be like you're in the storm. No. Well, actually, if you had your Tweaked Audio headphones on, you may not have heard them because Tweaked Audio are designed <laughs> to give great music and great talk. They're engineered for durability. They have noise reduction design. So some of that noise from the thunder would have probably been gone completely, which probably would be a good thing. Next time that happens, I want Rodrigo to go, the quiet storm, 97.5. <laughs> Frau Brucker. Let me see if I can. Frau Brucker. Frau Brucker. No, nope, didn't happen. Oh, well. Um, Normally, these uh, tweaked audio headphones retail for 19.95 to 34.95. Hanging from the rearview mirror was a bloody hook. <laughs> my my thunder is not dramatic at all. Nope, you have no dramatic thunder, Matthew. Uh, here's the best thing. When you go to tweakedaudio.com and you use the checkout code MAJOR, you will get them for 33% off the price. I love it when you, you uh, tweet me and say, hey, Stephen, I finally broke down and bought some tweaked audio headphones using the checkout code MAJOR. They're fantastic. I love it when people send me those things. Probably at least once a week I'm getting a tweet from one of you. That says that they finally got a pair, they loved them, they're finally believing me, and they've become converts to Tweaked Audio. And such a great company, too, because if, you're, uh, if you ever have a problem with your Tweaked Audio, you contact them, and they're willing and ready to help you right away. Uh, so go over to Tweaked Audio, look at some of their new stuff, including their sports earbuds. Thanks, Tweaked Audio, for sponsoring this episode of the Major Spoilers Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to podcast at Majorspoilers.com, or you can call the Major Spoilers Hotline. Matthew, the Major Spoilers Hotline <gasps> number is... 785-727-1939. The major spoilers. I just forgave Stephen for four years of abuse. Hotline. Let's see if I can make up for that as we... You can. <laughs> okay, fine. We're recording flashbacks we have... this week. By the end of that show, I'll hate you again. Yes, I'm fine. sure you will. Uh, we have 25 episodes to go, essentially, before we hit the magic 700. And you know we are in our 700? Tenth, we are in our 10th year, and I cannot wait to celebrate more with major spoilers as we go into 10th year. So let's bring back some of those phone calls. I know Slappy is a big fan of the phone calls, but let's yeah. get some more of you calling in and leaving messages that we can play on future episodes. Or better yet, you can <laughs> messages even use you can that play, messages that I can play, yes. Uh, better yet, you can use that same uh, number every Friday for Finally Friday, where you can call in and talk to us about anything that is on your mind. If you missed last week's episode, ladies and gentlemen, you missed That's a good. fantastic episode, Ashley. What? You did. Ashley was there, so she didn't miss it. Well, she wasn't listening. <laughs> but I thought it was a fantastic conversation uh, where we were talking about whitewashing. We were talking about um, um, internet hate. We got we got deep, man. We really did. It was a good conversation. You can find that over there in the Major Spoilers Podcast Network Master Feed. You can also find it on our YouTube channel, Major Spoilers Video. All right. That would have get... been a great time for more thunder. Yes. Boom. <laughs> Uh, maybe it'll happen when we say Hellboy in Mexico is our trade paperback this week. See, there you go. Ooh. Nicely done, Hellboy. Hellboy in Mexico is a collection of, uh, short stories and I think one single issue, uh, that talk about Hellboy and his time in Mexico in 1956, where he basically went on a mission and disappeared for five months. And this, uh, this trade paperback collects those stories written by Mike Mignola with art by Mike Mignola, Richard Corbin, uh, uh, Mick uh, McMahon, Fabio Moon and Gabriel Ba uh, do some art in this as well. Rodrigo, is this your favorite trade paperback of all time in the uh, Hellboy series? 
Uh, it, it's it's not, but I, I really I really do appreciate it. Uh, it's nice, especially because he kind of didn't have to do it. But I, I think we've really seen that Mike Mignola will eventually fill up every second of Hellboy's life <laughs> um, because originally, um, and and this 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 collection is nice because it comes with uh, essentially a a prologue to each story from Mike Mignola saying, here's what I was thinking when I did this. And um, really this, uh, this uh, whole thing of, of Hellboy in Mexico started off on like a cover sketch that he did yep. with him and a luchador um, standing on top of a bunch of dead uh, zombie bodies. And right. he's like, man, I got to explore that somehow. Yeah. It, it was kind of a throwaway thing. Then again, so was Hellboy. Like if you've right, read right. like his story of Hellboy, he just drew a monster guy once and called him Hellboy. And then he was like, hmm. And all these years later, there's, you know, 57 trades and two movies and whatever. Some uh, animated stuff, which is pretty decent, too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Hellboy in Mexico uh, is what? Five stories. I think it's five stories. Uh, Six, maybe, because one is a two-parter. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's Hellboy in Mexico, Hellboy versus the Aztec Mummy, mm-hmm. um, the Coffin oh. Man, the Coffin Man 2, Hellboy Gets Married, and uh, House of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they do chronicle um, Hellboy's time in Mexico. The The first one, Hellboy in Mexico, kind of sets up the framework. It, it, it starts out as him back in Mexico, an Abe Sapien... Uh, and him find this place. And one of the pictures there is a picture of Hellboy. So Hellboy kind of starts the narration um, and talking about uh, basically him and his uh, masked wrestler friends going around <laughs> fighting monsters. They were three brothers. Yeah, there were three brothers. One of them didn't make it, though. That's what's right. sad. Sure. Right. Um, but uh, whole drunken Hellboy and his adventures, I, f- I found really, really interesting. I, 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 I kind of like this trade. I don't know what you guys thought about it. Did you like it? Not like it? Just kind of a, a real quick like, no like, Ashley? I liked it. I thought um, it was kind of a nice homage back to the way, like, like Rodrigo mentioned earlier, of how Hellboy started out and how all the stories are sort of disparate from different parts of his life, but collected together. And I also mm-hmm. think that the setting lent for a lot of really just stunning art pieces of artwork throughout oh, the trade. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Matthew, like, no like? Richard Corbin Hellboy, of course I like. This is, some of this is just utterly brilliant. And I think that the conceit of it, the whole, well, it was my lost weekend. It was five years. Okay, well, it was a long lost weekend. <laughs> I love the, just the idea that this immortal character had a couple of bad days, you know, and and lost a friend. And it for him, it was five years. And for us, it's these weird, awesome little bits and pieces stories with werewolves and luchadors and a Frankenstein. I, I think it's five months, not five years. Oh, whatever. Same thing. Years, <laughs> months. It's all the same. Yeah. He was really drunk. He was really yeah. drunk. For five years? I've been drunk for five years. Yeah. Not, not currently. I don't know if you want to admit to that on the air. Theoretically. Yeah. So what what was your what was your favorite story, Rodrigo? My favorite story was probably uh, the Coffin Man stuff. Oh, really? How come? Tell us um, what happens in the Coffin Man, and then tell us why you like this one. Uh, so the Coffin Man is uh, a little girl. The Hellboy is getting drunk at in a bar, and, and a little at, like you do. 
when you're a Hellboy in Mexico, and a little girl uh, comes and finds them. It's like, oh no, the coffin man is stealing people. And so Hellboy goes and fights them, and then uh, Donkey gets turned into a monster, and they fight, and Hellboy loses the coffin man, but then eventually tracks him down, and basically there's a big magical showdown. Uh, Hellboy, I believe, technically wins, but gets turned into a monkey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and eventually snaps out of it and finds himself just out in the desert somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, Where are my pants? Yep. It's... It, it, it like... A lot of Hellboy stuff just happens randomly. There's no real reason. There's no real story to it other than Hellboy encounters some monster. Um, carnage ensues. But it's always kind of like those little funny, interesting bits that happen in the middle or at the end that really make a Hellboy story. And basically Hellboy walking out of that hut mm-hmm. as a chimp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then passing out is is yep. really uh really what does it for me plus isn't this like uh umbrella academy guy yeah uh, both yeah. both uh gabriel ba and fabian moon did the art for both part one and part two they um yeah. each one of them took a part on that so yeah uh, my favorite one is the house of the living dead That's in a this good one. in this one hellboy has been doing his wrestling thing in mexico for a while and, uh, of course, he's wearing the mask and all this stuff, which I have a question, though, because when he's done with his fight, he goes to a bar and all the other uh, luchadors are wearing their mask. He takes mm-hmm. his off. I thought you weren't supposed to take your mask off. Right. Uh, you're not. Um, if you're in the tradition, I think that everybody everybody knows who Hellboy is already because ah, okay. they've seen him around mm-hmm. before and he mm-hmm. just he wears a mask. And, and that's probably OK. It's kind of how like. You know, Ray Mysterio Jr. has been unmasked like a thousand times. Mm, okay. So some people get away with it, but okay. yeah, you're not supposed to take it off if okay. you, if you are in the uh, in the system, basically. Okay. Ray actually got a special extension. He actually goes by Ray Mysterio now because he was unmasked as Junior, uh, well, but he got go. a special dispensation because of the way it happened. As long as he is not billing himself as Junior. He wears his mask, so that's there. There is there is bureaucracy in everything, even actually, possibly, especially in Mexican wrestling. (laughs) So in the in the House of the Living Dead, this this guy approaches Hellboy and says, "Hey, my boss wants you to uh, to come up to the big house to his scary mansion out in the uh, out in the interlands." Uh, And by the way, if you don't, this little girl is going to get her throat slit. So Hellboy's like, "Okay, I'll go," but if you harm her, you're in big trouble. They get there just as night is falling, and they go through this creepy laboratory and uh finds out that hellboy is going to fight frankenstein or a frankenstein yep hellboy fights Mm -hmm. fights a frankenstein fights a frankenstein and not only that there's a hunchback in there too which is cool Mm -hmm. mad scientist the the frankenstein Mm -hmm. monster goes all crazy and starts tearing things up uh the girl is escaping uh the the guy that originally had the proposition turns into a wolf man he's a wolf man and then uh, they go into this uh, catacombs. Uh, the girl and goes into the catacombs, and um, um, there's a there's a vampire there. There's a Dracula. There's in a Dracula. There. Yeah, there's, there's in fact a Dracula. The in best there. part of that Dracula scene is uh, Dracula, of course, has been stabbed through the heart with a magic sword, and it's and it's been pulled out, and so he's starting to come back to life. And Dracula's like, "I'm alive. I'm starting to breathe again." And suddenly, Hellboy's just like, "Cut, junk!" 
right back through <laughs> through the heart in just like just a couple of classic panels. But uh, yeah, uh, that that I, I mean I don't know if it's just the style, but that vampire really has a Christopher Lee thing going. Well, yeah, this yes. was I think originally if you read the uh, the the prequel part to it, it talks about how this was done for a. Boris Karloff tribute or something. Uh, and so that's where everything comes together. But the fact that Hellboy is fighting Frankenstein, Wolfman and Dracula yeah. in the in the same book, that's why this one is a is a favorite of mine. Yeah, the Invisible Man's in there. We just didn't see him. Yeah, we him. just didn't see him. Ashley, yeah. do you have a favorite story in this collection? Um, I also really liked the Coffin Man story, the the one with the little girl. But I will say that there were a distressing amount of little girls either in distress or about to be in distress yeah. throughout this yeah. collection. I didn't realize that was kind of uh, like a Hellboy uh, signature move, but I guess it is. I don't. I, I don't, I don't know that it is. It's. I, I think it's. It's. It really just so happened that all of the stories happened to have it. Mm-hmm. I think a little bit of it is is tropes of the source material because they're playing with. The old horror That's movies and the, the Universal yeah. monster flicks, and even the El Santo movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Matthew, what about you? What was your favorite one? Hellboy gets married. Okay, tell us that story. Well, the thing that's really fascinating is Hellboy gets married. You think, oh my God, how are they going to do this? What are they going to It's Hellboy. He can't get married. But it turns out, you see, he's drinking in a bar with his luchador pal. And this may be. Before a luchador dies, it's not really clear to me whether this is a dead luchador or one of the undead luchadors or one of the not dead luchadors. However, right. that, or the, no, one this of the is this is a different luchadors. this is a different one. This okay. is a guy who is uh, basically fighting as Lobster Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Ah, and he's like, I that. knew Lobster, and Hellboy's like, I knew Lobster Johnson. He did all this stuff, and the other guy's like, No, he was no. You are a silly man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but. As they're sitting and drinking, this beautiful woman walks by, and Hellboy's like, oh, I'm going to follow her. And then there's a lot of people with them, and then they're led somewhere, and suddenly Hellboy is marrying this woman in what turns out to be an unholy ceremony. No. The thing that I, the thing that I really love about this is I actually own a book called The Book of Urban Legends, and this is one of the urban legends in the story is – the devil shows up and you fall in love with the devil and you end up kind of married to the devil. Mm-hmm. But because it's Hellboy, you get to the point where, you know, they don't have this happen to say Richie Cunningham when the, the normal person would be devoured or something. He just pulls out his giant gun and starts shooting. And then the story ends with this. Oh, yeah, I killed her. Darn. And then you, you get the focus in on his wedding band. and It's like forever in this life and after. And throughout the whole thing, the question is, has Hellboy, by marrying this mysterious woman and or Harpy, given up his soul? And the back of my head is like, does Hellboy have a soul? Well, actually, I haven't I haven't been keeping up with Hellboy in Hell, but I'd be really curious to see if she crops up you know, in Hellboy in Hell. That that would be something interesting, and that would be an entirely Mignola thing to do. Yeah, I mean, Hellboy, Hellboy, yeah, has such like recurring themes uh, where you wouldn't necessarily expect them. You know, it's mm-hmm. like Hellboy with all the stabbing and kicking and shooting um, lulls you into a false sense of security that mm-hmm. it's like you're not like I'm not reading Sandman. This isn't going to come back, and then it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and Mick McMahon does art that. I mean, it has enough elements of Mignola and it has the, you know, the use of the blacks and the shadows and the darks that makes you remember it. But it also feels almost like 
Hellboy the Animated Series. Yeah. Mm. Uh, or Hellboy the Brave and the Bold, actually, is what I, I thought of as we were going through here. Because there's just enough cartoon in it mm-hmm. that I kind of want to, you know, have some chocolate frosted sugar bombs and watch it on a Saturday morning. Yeah. Have you that's, guys seen that's... Sword of Storms? Mm-mm. If you if you watch Hellboy Sword of Storms, which is the animated Hellboy thing, it actually looks one, yeah. a lot like this. It's a little yeah. bit more um like cell shady, but mm-hmm. it's it's got a real feel like that. Yeah, all the all the Hellboy animated ones, I think there were two animated movies that came out um by the Tad Blood Stones, the guy yeah. behind uh Darkwing Duck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um he he brought these to, to light and they they are really, really good. So if you have a chance, Matthew and Ashley, go check them out. Let's the, get Hellbanger. The the thing that I like about Hellboy and have always liked about Hellboy is how even though these stories are told in bits and pieces through different books, whether it be the the standalone Hellboy or Bar- Boris Karloff's special or Dark Horse Presents or wherever it is, Mignola keeps continuity tight. Where yeah. here are things that happen in these time periods and that only happen during these time periods or only happen during these months. Mm-hmm. And then there are repercussions of this later in life. And I and and I guess at at some point you could get mired down in it. I mean, if you're not a if you're a new Hellboy reader, things can get messy very quickly. And even if you're an old Hellboy reader, because things jump around so much in time, oh, yeah. things yeah. can get yeah. very messy very quickly. But I kind of like the fact that they keep this tight continuity. Uh, Ashley, do you, do you like that or, or or not? Um, I like it now because I've read enough Hellboy that. That I can more or less parse it out, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think it is any more troubling than when you're trying to get into, you know, whatever Batman for the first time. Mm, true. You know, if you if, if you have no context, it's all going to seem like, you know, it's up in the air, and the timeline is on a shift so often. Um, so yeah, for the most part, I like it. I also like the fact that um, Hellboy is mostly tied to Pacific to specific. Um, historical periods, I think that is a great strength that the book has. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, that Hellboy is really tied to is myth and storytelling. And because he's yeah. in Mexico, Rodrigo, we get references to uh, Tetsukatl and, and um, the others. How much of this falls into what you know of myth from, from, uh, from Mexico? Uh, most of it, really kind of the... For me, the the one disappointing thing about this book is that um, Mexico is a treasure trove of super weird myths. Mm-hmm. And by his own admission, Mignola didn't do a lot of research for this. Mm-hmm. He just kind of went through and said, "Is like vampires are turkeys in Mexico. Awesome." Um, <laughs> so you know the the um, Aztec mummy features a lot of. Um, or, or some important gods in the um, kind of Nawa or like Aztec pantheon, and they're just kind of like hanging out over there. And some some other stuff, some Babylonian stuff that uh, Hellboy deals with, some like European stuff that Hellboy de- deals with. It really seems like Mignola spent a lot of time mm-hmm. figuring it out, figuring out how it fits into things. Um, and uh, at the end of the Aztec mummy, we just kind of get uh, it turns out it was these guys and then like two giant word balloons that are like, and here's how they fit into the cosmology. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, and I'm not sure if that's a, a thing from I mean, is that an artifact of the Dark Horse Presents short story format? I mean, it might be, but oh. that's the thing is um, 
there is some good lore. It's like basically Mignola didn't do a lot of research, but he stumbled onto basically doing things right, um, mm-hmm. especially where the uh, masked wrestlers were concerned and a lot of the other stuff. Um, because it, Mexican legends are actually super weird and stuff like the coffin man and stuff like the vampires, it, it really, that's kind of what Mexican, uh, stories tend to be like. Um, so you think he did okay in, in hitting he did, all those things? Yeah, he did. He did okay. He kind of skimmed the surface and that's fine. This whole series is an afterthought and it, uh, to me, because I'm Mexican, it's it kind of sucks that the one about the culture that I'm most familiar with is an afterthought, but I suppose it couldn't have happened at all. And he does approach it with the same amount of like weird respect that he does everything else. That mm-hmm. is to say, everything's going to be the same level of cool and weird regardless of where it's happening. Yeah, yeah. So it works. I can't wait, Ashley, until Hellboy goes to Canada. <laughs> Ooh. He'll fight a Yeti and a Sasquatch. He'll meet these three Mounties and one of them (laughs) die in battle with, uh, I don't know, Stan Mokita. Then they'll go out for Timbits. Timbits aren't that great. I've never been to Canada. I don't know. It's cold, man. (laughs) My wife was in Canada for like 10 minutes. She walked across the border and was like, ha ha, I'm in Canada. And then she came back. Uh, yes. Was art okay for everybody? Was was art okay in, in, in these different ones? I mean, I know we have a bunch of different artists, and most of them, for the most part, kept on with that very yeah. traditional Hellboy look. Uh, I mean, but, it, most was, of it most of it is pseudo-Mignola, so I think mm-hmm. that that, you know, it holds up for the most part. Mm-hmm. The Corbin stuff is fantastic. Yeah. The in-ring Hellboy stuff by Richard Corbin is just beautiful. Is that the one where he's and, fighting the Bat God? Uh, no, Corbin is the first one, the oh, one okay. with the, the Frankenstein and the Dracula. Oh, okay, okay. But, you know, that, that one even, you know, has the moments where it's like, here's a woman, and oh, by the way, Richard Corbin's drawing, so massive cleavage. But yeah, I don't feel like there's anything that sticks out as bad. I think you could feel the different artists' influences, but when you play the jazz that is Hellboy, you play it in Mignola's time signature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to. And if you don't, you know, if they were doing some weird five, six meter tool stuff going around, we'd have noticed. Otherwise, really, it kind of feels like it's of a piece with the other Hellboy stuff we've seen. Do, I, I wonder, do you think that that when you do the art for Hellboy that it has to follow that style? I mean, what what would happen if if someone was like, uh, I don't know. Let's say Kurt Swan was still alive. And he's like, I'm going to do my take mm-hmm. on Hellboy. And you got this very, you know, Kurt Swan looking tale. It would be totally different look than well, what we I mean, identify as Mike Mignola. But would the, it would it still be as impactful or would it be just like, this is weird? I, I think there's a lot of leeway. The The book that I've been reading, the um, Beyond the Fences, mm-hmm. that one is not very noir looking. Like everything happens in suburbia and there are like no shadows. Like... Mm-hmm. You know, when you think of Hellboy, you think of him like climbing up some Nazi mountain and there's like no light, right? He's just like a splash of red and mostly black and then a spooky skull comes out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? But uh, in Beyond the Fences, and you know, if you read like BPRD and the Abe Sapien stuff, Mm -hmm. they do tend to have a different feel. So I think there's a lot of leeway. Um, I don't feel like Hellboy is not Hellboy 
uh, let, me, let me put it again. Someone might feel that unless it's like super dark and it looks like an mm-hmm. illustration out of a Vampire the Masquerade source book, mm-hmm. it's not Hellboy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of room for that and Hellboy can be okay and maybe uh, can benefit from looking extremely out of place in the suburbs or in the middle of a sunny meadow or something like that. So a Humberto Ramos uh, style Hellboy, Ashley, would be okay by you? Totally. 112% would buy. (laughs) Have you read Ramos's work on Crimson? Yeah. Because that is basically Humberto Ramos. I have. I own the hardcover. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. (laughs) I think that if you if you had an issue of Hellboy that was I'm from the 80s so let's say a John Byrne or a George Perez issue yeah. I feel like tonally you'd have to address that. You know Rodrigo's example of Hellboy in the suburbs and being out of place and doing his thing. I feel like if you're going to have someone whose art style differentiates that much you might have to do something with it. Like the itty bitty Hellboy stuff is still Hellboy. Sure. It may not be canonically Hellboy, but it, it's still a Hellboy story, and it feels like you know it it could take place in part of the Hellboy universe mm-hmm. when he's a little baby who loves pancakes. But I think that if say you know your Kurt Swan episode of Hellboy were to come out, you would want a story that draws on and celebrates the fact that this is a Kurt Swan version of Hellboy, yeah, or at least a different you know version of Hellboy. Maybe you said it. Somehow, all of a sudden, Hellboy has to deal with traditional Superman-type guy. But Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think you have to draw Hellboy like Mignola. I think that as a fan of Hellboy, a non-Mignola style needs to be not necessarily explicated or address but it needs to feel holistic to what you're saying yeah it needs to be thematically appropriate yeah Yeah. richard corbin doing this story works richard corbin an excellent choice for a hellboy story had that been say milo minara you might have had some sort of differentiation you couldn't give milo minara that exact same story that they gave Richard Corbin and get the same sort of thing out of it. Mm-hmm. There aren't enough ladies in it. There aren't any women in it, exactly. I do, I do feel like you, could, you can always kind of draw a, a proper line. Like if they did Hellboy in Italy and they gave it to Minara, then it'd be like, it would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> or if they did the Hellboy X parody, oh, well, you yeah, give it to Minara for sure. Wait, I can't wait till uh, Hellboy goes to, uh, to Belgium. And he gets to meet uh, Tintin and Astro. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The hair gay Hellboy would be awesome. Hair gay Hellboy, by the way, is my drag be, name. Would be but very, will very it cool. or will it not still be slightly racist? <laughs> oh, probably. It's, it's, that's, that's, that's only, your if, Tintin, that's only if Tintin and Hellboy go to Africa. That's, that's yeah. 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 So bottom you know line. Let's send them to Belgium and have them be Goshini and then it'll be like. Yeah, that's uh, why I said meets Asterix and uh, yeah, yeah, Obelix. That would be great. That would actually be awesome. For Hellboy to jump into that time period and be dealing with those Norwegian gods and stuff and fighting the Romans. That would just be cool. Everyone could just call him Satanics. There you go. Um, yes. All right. Bottom line for me is. <laughs> That's a joke for you, Stephen. <laughs> yes, no, I, know, I got it. Okay. <laughs> um, bottom line for me is this is a good collection. It's not a great collection. I don't think this is the collection of the greatest Hellboy stories ever told. But if you're looking something that breaks away from the European uh, myth type stuff, I think this is a, is a good collection to check out. Uh, I enjoyed it, so I'm I'm uh, giving it a uh, check it out and read it uh, recommendation. Uh, Ashley, what about you? Uh, I would I would definitely go read it, but I would not 
necessarily recommend buying it. Um, like Rodrigo, I think, flushed out. Whether or not you are super familiar with the mist that they're dealing with, you can tell that it is a little half-baked. Um, the stories outside of that, though, they're great Hellboy stories. The art looks really good, and it's a really pretty setting. So read it. Matthew. I am a sucker for a shaggy dog story, and I'm a sucker for the pop culture references that we find in here. The character who's clearly not Blue Demon, but is Blue Demon. Uh, by the way, I pronounced demon wrong. I don't care. But that's the thing. This story is such that I feel this is one of my favorite Hellboy collections, and I would recommend it because it's weird and it's not exactly a linear story, which I like. And in the end, so much of it turns out to be a big shaggy dog story that maybe my my love of Ted Mosby kicks in. And I'm just like, you know, sometimes when you're telling someone the story of your life, you get to the end of a story and it just sort of ends. And that's really sort of fine. I really like the way this it just this entire collection breaks down. So I would recommend it. I'd say go get it. So if you like a shaggy dog story, do you like a shaggy DA story? That's, a, that's one just for you. See? 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 I told you by the end of the show, I'd hate you again. <laughs> Come on. And it's a Dean Jones. It it's a Dean right Jones classic. It's got Tim Conway in it. Come it, on. Okay. If you're talking Dean Jones, maybe. I thought you were talking Tim Allen and I was never going to speak oh, no, to no, you no. again. Shaggy DA with uh, Dean Jones, Suzanne Plachette, Tim Conway. Yeah. It's all good. I remember. I'm do you too. love... Do you love Game of Thrones? Because there's literally a character called Shaggy Dog, and we haven't seen him or his owner in a, a season and a half. Uh-oh. Game of Thrones. As we exit out of here, Rodrigo, what is your final thought on Hellboy in Mexico? Uh, I think Hellboy in Mexico is a Hellboy fan's Hellboy. Like, it's, <laughs> it's disjointed. It's irrelevant to the plot uh, <laughs> in, in general, but... It is more stories and from Hellboy that fit into the Hellboy mythology and fill in some time um, and do it at times in a funny way or an interesting way or in a sad way. So although if somebody is like, oh, man, I'm going to get into Hellboy, what should I read? I'd be like, read Seed of Destruction. But if somebody... Yeah, if somebody was like, oh, man, I just got through Conqueror Worm. What should I read? I'd be like, oh, well, why don't you pick up Hellboy in Mexico? I think it'll be a good palate cleanser. (laughs) It's good. A sorbet, if you will. Yeah. All right. I think that wraps it up for this installment of the Major Spoilers Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for downloading and listening. And if you thought that this discussion was worth, you know, $2 a month, we'd appreciate it if you became a Major Spoilers VIP. You can find out more. You can sign up. Over at members.majorspoilers.com, you can become a a bronze, a silver, or a gold member. Depending on what level you are at, you get more bonus stuff over at members.majorspoilers.com. Check it out. It's all for a good cause, your entertainment. And uh, thank you for being part of the Major Spoilers experience. We're going to be back next week to take a look at Civil War. Nope, no thunder there. Why are we going to take a look at Civil War? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because there's a movie that's coming out. Maybe because we know that you love comics and we do too. We'll talk to you soon. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the Man of Steel. I'm gonna rearrange your face if you continue to debate whether Logan's claws could pierce Steve Rogers' shield. I just couldn't care as if they'd bring back Craven. Spider-Man
Podcast is copyright 2016 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.